0: Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W. That's all one word.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast all-one word dot store. And please consider signing up for the Patreon. We've got two separate tiers: the lowest tier of five dollars. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. For the all-access Patreon tier, you get a monthly Zoom party and all kinds of other goodies, including exclusive investigative reports from Clues, State of the Unions, and other uh, treats. Quite a bit of stuff up there. I just recently covered the 2012 Captive Nations Summit. I was feet away from Elena Zelensky shortly before she went to meet with uh, Joe Biden it was a, uh, a fascinating event, all kinds of things such as Putin's uh, potential assassination were discussed. If you want to find out about all that good stuff, sign up at the Patreon, kids, you will not be disappointed. All right, for today's outing, I am joined today by my favorite repeater, Mr. John Brisson of We Have Read the Documents. John, thank you so much for joining us again today, sir.
1: Glad to be here as always, Recluse.
0: As always, that's right. All right, it's time for the eighth and final installment in our examination of international fascism. This show is going to be off the chain. This time around, we are headed into the future, Giddies. Now, unfortunately, the great Danny Wow, the real visionary behind this series, is unable to join us. Danny's had some health problems right now. It's nothing serious, but but that and some scheduling conflicts prevented me from getting back on here for this last outing. And sorry for that, and we wish him a quick and speedy recovery from uh, the issues that he's presently having. Anyway, John and I are going to do our best today to bring this series to a satisfactory conclusion. Obviously, Danny was set to play a large role in this show, so we're going to have to do a little bit of winging here and there, so bear with us. So we're going to get into the contemporary role that the PayPal mafia plays in the geopolitical landscape as well as the ideology, possibly the real ideology of Peter Thiel. But more importantly, we're going to try and look beyond many of the concepts we've explored in this series thus far. Well, the series is principally about fascism, hence the name, and to a lesser extent, capitalism itself. For our conclusion, I wanted to consider what these concepts mean going into the 21st century and if we are beyond them. So what comes next? So on that note, let us dig in here. Now, over the course of this series, we've offered up a lot of different definitions of fascism. The plan originally was for Danny to lay his notions of technocratic fascism out for you guys today. In case you're curious, he gave us a bit of a sneak peek into that and the last International Fascism show. Uh, but as for myself, I have a slightly bit of a different reading. I hadn't planned on getting into this into it in this series as this is really Danny's baby, but again, circumstances have forced my hand a bit, so I've got to go with what I know. So the first thing I want to briefly address are the historical circumstances behind capitalism, fascism, and communism for that matter. We've talked about this a lot already in this series, so I'll try to keep this as brief as possible. So in my reading of history, I see these developments as the result of two factors. The first one is widely known and discussed, the Industrial Revolution. It abolished feudalism and led to staggering changes in how goods and services were produced. It was a new way of living and eventually came to be defined as capitalism. Obviously, there were a lot of flaws with capitalism from the get-go and there's only been further exasperated as the years have gone on. Thus, many of the major political ideologies that have emerged since the inception of capitalism have tried to address its peculiar nature and failings, let's just say. The most extreme versions were communism, theoretically the working class's response, and fascism, the response of the capitalist class. And yes, the capitalists themselves also had a complex relationship with this particular economic system that uh, secures their status. Anyway, that brings uh, us to the next major development concerning capitalism, communism, and fascism, and the one that you don't really hear a lot about. And that's the Peace of Westophilia. Again, it's not really invoked nearly as much as it should be, in my estimation. Now, for those of you unaware, the Peace of Westophilia which unfolded shortly after the, um, the mid-17th century and the Thirty Years' War, I believe, is generally when it is believed that the conception of the modern nation-state came into being. Now, prior to this period, authority was widely dispersed in various European regions by a wide variety, aristocrats, monarchies, church officials, guildsmen, and so forth jurisdictions were all over the place. I mean, the Catholic Church claimed territory in pretty much all of uh, Europe where they had you know, properties and that kind of thing. Where loyalties lay and in what institutions were supreme was extremely ambiguous up to the Renaissance. Now, with the emergence of the nation state, there was now a clear line of succession from the chief executive in a contained and defined territory one went down through the ranks of the bureaucracy and so on. And when we take this kind of thing for granted now, this profoundly changed both how citizens interacted with their government as well as their ways of living. Life, I mean, obviously up to this point had been largely localized and it was still largely localized, but for the first time, it was really, I think, when nationalism was, you know, it today started to emerge as well. I mean, really before then, people just tended to associate much more with their villages or their cities or that kind of thing. Anyway, as far as communism and fascism go, the importance of the peace of Westphalia. There is an importance of the peace of Westphalia is rather obvious. Communism looks to the state as the final means of resolving inequality. This is a notion that you know really couldn't have existed prior to the peace of Westphalia. Fascism, by contrast, used the power of the state to impose inequality. But both are ultimately wedded to the Westphalian state, in my estimation. You really need the state for these ideologies, especially communism and frankly, I think really to some extent fascism as well. I mean, I know we've had sort of this question, I mean, if it can exist in the private sector throughout the series, but again, that's kind of something we'll get into here in a little bit. But anyway, but modern capitalism, it's also dependent on the state. And this drives the capitalists nuts, man, it really does. They don't want the state to interfere in how they accumulate their wealth or how they run their businesses or much of anything else. But they're dependent on the Westphalian state for their wealth. They attempt to subvert the state so that it cannot impose the policies of the public on the capitalist class, whether providing them with the necessary capital to continue. What I mean by that is among other things, or I should say really the necessary structure to continue, and what I mean by that is the legal system. While a lot of libertarians will argue that the law is not needed to enforce contracts, collect debts, and so forth, history just doesn't bear that out. So the Westphalian state provided the capitalists with a clear legal structure and enforcement capabilities to operate in. Again, you know, having debts and stuff is all well and good, and you can accuse people and demand that they pay them. But if you don't have a way, of you know, enforcing the debt collection, it doesn't really mean a lot. And again, I mean, most practical practical purposes, the government is the most effective means of doing this. Frequently provide, and beyond that, it frequently provides vast amounts of capital to the private sector, which in many cases could be raised by no other institution than the state. I mean, this is another thing that again is huge to capitalism. I mean, almost all of the major industries. Great corporations, I mean, really going back to the the early ones, like the British East India companies were, or the various East India companies that the European powers had were almost totally creations of the states. And again, this is true very much of the um, the American post-war economy, which was fueled by so much spending and defense contracts and so forth. So on top of all that, it also often serves as a safeguard against bad business practices by bailing out the capitalists. Something that, again, we've seen a lot of in recent years and it's not a new phenomenon. Again, go back and look at the British East India Company. It went belly up quite a few times and uh, needed more than a few bailouts. One of them actually resulted in the American Revolution, more or less. Um, So yeah, it's, it's a lot more wedded to the state than a lot of the theories of capitalism would have you believe. I mean, I know that's that's not how it's supposed to be, but that's the reality. One of the ways it could be argued is much that the statist ideology is communism or fascism. Again, I know that's a really controversial statement to a lot of people out there, but again, I uh, stand by that the the governments of the various European powers were instrumental in uh, and later the American one in creating what we think of now as capitalism. So capitalism and communism fascism are all closely wedded to the industrial revolution and the Westphalian peace, both of which were in full swing by the mid-16th century. This period and the roughly 100 years before it was some of the most profound in human history. It was in this a total overturning of social structures that existed for centuries. So... And again, this is the end of feudalism, you know, all this other good stuff. I mean, you essentially also have the scientific revolution breaking out around this time as well. You see to start the, you know, the whole concept of like a secular state, separated from religion. Just, it was a incredible change that people were experiencing from this point onward. Uh, and so now it's 2022 and humanity is arguably in similar position. The information revolution is surely the most significant since the industrial one. Like the earlier revolution, the information one is having a profound effect on how human beings think, feel, work, interact with one another. And it's not just the industrial revolution that's giving way either. It's the Westphalian state is on the way out as well. I think the most apt description for replacing it is networking. Increasingly, our lives are centered around and influenced by who and what is in our network. Our network is both transnational and trans state. It's not even really a physical location necessarily. And unlike prior form, you know, and that's really another distinct difference, uh, unlike prior forms of uh, government and so forth, it's basically a digital construct that bleeds into the real world and affects how our real world interactions uh, are conducted. John and I, for instance, are a wonderful example of this. Uh, our relationship totally started online and it has subsequently become a very rewarding one in the real world and it has been incorporated into a broader network that we're both in that exists both digitally and physically across a wide variety of territories encompassing a very diverse group of people with many different talents and so forth and you know we all kind of work in conjunction for various projects and so forth so Kind of think as time goes on this is going to be kind of more and more the norm of how you know we're interacting so with this in mind i offer up the following observation a big part of why there appears to be no solutions to the problems facing the world at present is because we're still operating from an industrial and westphalian mindset the left and right both agree we're headed towards totalitarianism but they're still disputing if it's communist or fascists but the world it's very different now from when those ideologies emerged. Same applies to capitalism. So I think a good first step is trying to develop a new paradigm for understanding the modern world. So in my estimation, one of the leading figures in this regard is Shersana Zubov. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Thousands of apologists if I'm not. Her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, is not just a breathtaking historical account of the rise of mass surveillance in the digital age, but it's a philosophical treatise on what this means for humanity. She offers up concepts she dubs surveillance capitalism, hence the title, though I kind of think post-capitalism may be more apt, maybe even post-fascism as well, as we should see. Regardless, this is a heady concept, and there's a lot to unpack. So before we get into surveillance capitalism proper, I need to briefly discuss two of Zuboff's other key concepts, and they're the hive mind and big other. All right, so to start out with the hive mind, I'm actually going to read not from Zuboff's work, but from another one here. By a gentleman called Eric J. Larson. This is from a book called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, which we're gonna uh, hear a lot more about when we get into the conclusion here. But he had some stuff on the hive mind as well, which I think is really interesting. So, first off, here's like kind of a basic definition that he offers up with this. Um, the ploy is ironically conservative. When smartphones are seen as evolving into super intelligence, then radical inventions become unnecessary. We keep in place designs and ideals that benefit the status quo, all the while thinking of unbridled progress. Human intelligence becomes collective like a hive of bees or worse, the hive mind of Star Trek's Borg collective, always organized by some invisible someone behind the scenes. Basically, in this mythology, the human mind becomes an outdated version of coming machines." So that's interesting. He goes on to note, if we had to pick a year that human potential died as a serious online meme anyway, 2008 would be the frontrunner. Big data itself entered the lexicon. Chris Anderson of Wired published the provoc- uh, provocation that big data would replace theory and science, a not-so-subtle suggestion that human innovation could simply be outsourced to computation. And AI by 2008 had been repackaged in its modern guise, As data science, the trajectory here, in retrospect, seems obvious. From citizen bloggers, individuals forging a new human future, to hive minds buzzing about, making encyclopedias, to big data and AI replacing human thinking, even writing us of pesky theory and science. Human nature is not a machine, as Binkler quoting Mills just two years earlier. Suddenly, Binkler's hope for humanity online got subsumed into the mythology of AI a machine revolution that now displaces and ignores human creativity. Like much discussion about AI these days, the transformation seems foolishly motivated and conceived, to put it mildly. Now we're gonna get more into this whole concept too about the collectivity because this is a really fascinating notion. But now I wanted to get into Zuboff's concept of the hive mind here for you guys. So, okay, Eric Schmidt of Google emphasizes the crucial insight that differentiates AI from the way people learn. Instead of the typical assurances that machines can be designed to be more like human beings and therefore less threatening, Schmidt and the company argue the opposite. It is necessary for people to become more machine-like. Machine intelligence is enthroned as the hypotheses of collective action in which all the machines in a network system move seamlessly towards confluence, all sharing the same understanding and thus operating in unison with maximum efficiency to achieve the same outcomes. The jackhammers do not independently appraise their situation. They each learn what they all learn. They each respond the same way to uncredentialed hands, their brains operating as one in the service to the policy. The machines stand or fall together, right or wrong together. As Eric Schmidt and others lament, when driving, people mostly learn from their own mistakes, but they literally run from the mistakes of others. People collectively make the same mistakes over and over again. As a result, hundreds of thousands of people die worldwide every year in traffic collusions. AI evolves differently. When one of the self-driving cars makes an error, all of the self-driving cars learn from it. In fact, new self-driving cars are born with the complete skill set of their ancestors and peers. So collectively, these cars can learn faster than people. With this insight, in a short time, self-driving cars safely blended into our roads alongside human drivers as they kept learning from each other's mistakes. Sophisticated AI-powered tools will empower us to learn better from the experiences of others. The lessons with self-driving cars is that we can learn and do more collectively. This is a sufficient but extraordinary statement of the machine template for these social relations of an instrumentarian society. The essence of these facts is the first, machines are not individuals. And second, we should be more like machines. The machines mimic each other and so must we. machines move in confluence, not many rivers, but one, so must we. The machines are each structured by the same reasoning and flowing towards the same objective. So must we be structured. John, I wanted to open this up here like briefly for you because I know the hive mind thing, you see this a lot like in the QAnon uh, stuff and what have you. Do, Do you have like any thoughts on like it turning up in this kind of like context?
1: I mean, yes. I mean, we see uh, the work of uh, Professor uh, Dilly and Arturo Taf- uh, Tafoya. You've had Arturo on, uh, and they uh, Dilly re- uh, recently uh, released a paper, kind of showing all of the uh, Twitter accounts, um, you know, tweeting and interacting with bot networks and each other. And people who um, are either in the QAnon operation as operatives or opportunists or people who are true believers, uh, kind of just uh, feeding off of each other and gaining momentum in spreading the mythos uh, you know, surrounding the QAnon operation, as well as uh, each other's accounts uh, to very elevated heights that even of itself was pushed by. Uh, the algorithms on Twitter, or possibly even by uh, Twitter itself and Jack Dorsey, so you would see kind of this collective network of people uh, and artificial intelligence uh, coming together to, you know, spread the "quote unquote" great awakening. Uh, the QAnon mythos uh, to the public. And though there's a claimed crackdown uh, on uh, the QAnon posts on Twitter now, and many uh, supposedly uh, pushers of such narrative uh, have been banned off, off of Twitter, but it's still, anybody can go take a look uh, alive and well. And some of it is being pushed by artificial intelligence directly. Some of it is being pushed, again, by true believers or operatives or opportunists. Even though I don't see how someone could still believe uh, and trust a plan, but nonetheless, there's some people who genuinely still do. And I mean, the psychographical, psychological, and spiritual warfare is thick. Is thick with the QAnon operation, and maybe there has not been uh, this amount of chaos, magic, or. Uh, this grand deception that's ever been done in the digital realm in human history, I don't know. Uh, but it seems to be an amalgamation of both artificial intelligence and you know our own God-given human brain uh, that seems to be uh, pushing uh, this information forward. And though I you know I do believe that artificial intelligence, can learn uh somewhat uh i myself am a uh soft ai adherent i believe uh and that i don't think artificial intelligence will ever uh eclipse uh the possibilities of the human brain um so i guess time will tell in that regard uh i just we'll don't necessarily think,
0: the it, end. Um, but-
1: think it's possible but it, did, did, did that kind of
0: uh yeah no i just add I more information you know, I just, I want to point this out to people that this hive mind concept is, I mean, I'm sure probably a lot of people listening to this have probably encountered it before, but this notion, I mean, it's also been, you know, um, circulating in a lot of counterculture circles for many years as well. I mean, I think actually going back to, you know, again, around like 08 or Well, you have
1: the New Age I mean, Global Consciousness Project, well, before,
0: right? Well, before then, though, I mean, it was actually the Anonymous Collective that really, I think, pushed the hive mind thing. Uh, in the counterculture um at least as far as i can tell, the first time that really i think was popularized outside of like kind of science fiction or something like that but i mean that was you know again the anonymous attacks the early ones were also sort of seen as uh, an instance of how this like kind of collective hive mind could like work in conjunction you know in interaction with machines and so forth and um It might actually have been, you know, where it kind of entered into some of these other lexicons, too, with things related to Q and so forth. Um, But this is something I I just find really fascinating, John, because of um, just the whole perception of Q being this movement that represents, you know, this sort of classic American patriotism, which is heavily defined around individualism obviously and yet it's so obsessed with this collective notion of the hive mind it's become so entwined with it and many of the earlier movements the Q grew out of it's really a a curious development i would say i mean yes very much so it's
1: something that continues to go on to this day that's
0: what i'm saying yeah and i mean just the whole notion with the ai and so forth um but again you know this is another thing especially we get into the end and kind of talk about the mythos of a lot of this stuff it's important to emphasize that the q Collective is a big part of pushing this stuff guys okay all right so next concept i gotta unpack here from And that's big other guys probably guess when she says big other she's talking about our ai overlords okay so Here's specifically what she says about Big Other. Surveillance capitalism is the puppet master that imposes its will through the medium of the ubiquitous digital apparatus. I now name the apparatus Big Other. It is the sensate, computerized, connected puppet that renders, monitors, computes, and modifies human behavior. Big Other combines these functions of knowing and doing to achieve a pervasive and unprecedented means of behavior modification. Surveillance capitalism's economic logic is directed through Big Other's vast capabilities to produce instrumentarian power, replacing the engineering of souls with the engineering of behavior. And again, this is this is a concept i mean again that didn't just emerge in the 21st century i mean it's really been i think kind of going back really to kind of the period between the first and the second world war but it was in general this sort of whole notion that you had to create a better you know more efficient workforce by altering behavior i mean this is really where you know, kind of the concept of developing the inner moral characteristics and again this doesn't have to be a religious thing people i need to emphasize that i mean you know, it can be a spiritual process a philosophical one religion can be a part of it if that's your path but it doesn't have to be but you know let's just talk about the inner morals and characters here that really started to go out the window i mean kind of around the time of the first world war and now we're at the full-blown concept where any of that is irrelevant. It's all just about the outside behavioral norms that we can observe. All right, so continue with Zuba. The instrumentarian power cultivates an unusual way of knowing that combines the formal indifference of the neoliberal worldview with the observable perspective of radical behavioralism. Radical behavioralism, that's B.F. Skinner she's talking about, for those of you unaware. Continuing. Thanks to big others' capabilities, instrumentarian power reduces human experience to measurable, observable behavioral while remaining steadfastly indifferent to the meaning of that experience. I call this the new way of knowing radical indifference. It is a form of observation without witness that yields the observe of an intimate, violent political region and bears an utterly different signature of havoc. The remote and abstracted contempt of impenetrability, complex systems, and the interests that, uh, that author them, carrying individuals on a fast-moving current to fulfill others' ends. What passes for social relations and economic exchange now occurs across the meeting of this robotized veil of abstraction." In radical indifference is operationalized in Big Others' dehumanized methods of evaluation that produces equivalence without equality. These methods reduce individuals to the lowest common denominator of sameness, an organism among organisms, despite all the vital ways in which we are not the same. But from Big Others' point of view, we are strictly other ones, organisms that behave. Big Other encodes the viewpoint of the other one as a global presence. There's no brother here of any kind, big or little, evil or good. There are no family ties, however grim. There's no relationship between Big Other and its otherized objects, just as there's no relationship between B.F. Skinner's scientists and subjects. There is no domination of the soul that displaces all the intimacy and attachments with Terra, far better to let a multitude of relationships bloom. Big Other does not care what we think, feel, or do, so long as millions, billions, trillions of sensate, actualizing, computerized eyes and ears can observe, render, datify, and instrumentalize the vast reservoirs of behavioral surpluses that are generated in this galactic uproar of connection and communication. And this is very much true. Assuming that we can create an AI, Again, assuming this is big assumption here, it's capable of that is surpassing human intelligence and human thinking. It is beyond arrogant to assume that it would perceive the world as the way that we would. And on top of that, there's another strange kind of aspect of this that has occurred to me. I don't, you know, want us to get too bogged down in the woo-woo here, but I mean, also this, you know, whole issue with the observation, the constant observation. Quantum physics, you know, again, this is somewhat debatable, but I mean, in a lot of uh, accepted um, circles of quantum physics now, it's believed that the act of merely observing something has an effect on it. We're, you know, thinking of this from biological organisms observing something and specifically human beings. I mean, you have all this observed observation that's coming from some kind of like machine intelligence. I mean, how is this factoring into other things in our conception of reality and so forth? I don't want to get, you know, too bogged down in metaphysics because that's, you know, this isn't what this series is about. It's not kind of in keeping with the parameters that Danny set. But I mean, again, from even just a philosophical perspective, there's a lot to ask here, folks. There really is. All right. So let's get into um, surveillance capitalism proper now. So what the heck is this? Surveillance capitalism departs from the history of market capitalism in three startling ways. This is um, Zuboff and uh, surveillance: the age of surveillance capitalism. Continuing with, by the way, first, it insists on the privilege of unfettered freedom and knowledge. Second, it abandons long-standing organic repositories with people. Third. The specter of life in the hive betrays the collectivist societal vision sustained by radical indifference and its material expression in Big Other. So let's get into these three aspects here that she uses to define surveillance capitalism. The first is freedom and knowledge. Okay, so begin with it. Surveillance capitalists are no different from other capitalists in demanding freedom from any sort of constraint. They insist upon the freedom to launch every novel practice while aggressively asserting the necessity of their freedom from law and regulation. This classic pattern reflects two bedrock assumptions about capitalism made by its own theorists. The first is that markets are instinctually unknowable. The second is that the ignorance produced by this lack of knowledge requires a wide ranging freedom of action for market actors. The notion that ignorance and freedom are essential characteristics of capitalism is rooted in the conditions of life before the advent of modern systems of communication and transportation, let alone global networks, the internet, or the ambiguous com- computational sentient actuating architects big other. Until the last few moments of human history, life was necessarily local and the whole was necessarily invisible to the part. Okay, so I'm trying to like break this down for you guys. So in classic laissez-faire economics, it's argued that the state must be totally hands off in order to allow the market to price goods and services or supply and demand, that kind of thing. That's the ignorance that she's referring to capitalists don't know what something is worth or what the demand will be for it until the market decides for them now, the various you know things like the soviet five-year programs which often failed to meet their goals in terms of economics they're usually cited as instances where human planning of human planned economies failed uh, it was the unknowable market rather than the bureaucrats or the specialists who were best at dictating economic development Again, I'm not saying that this is true or not. I'm just saying that this is the perception of the unknowable market that is usually put forth in classical liberalism, okay? Not trying to debate the merits of it or not. So continuing here, Zuboff. Something is aware is wrong. It is true that many capitalists, including surveillance capitalists, vigorously employ these centuries-old justifications for the freedom when they reject regulatory, legislative, judicial, societal, or any other form of public interference in their methods of operation. However, Big Other and the steady application of instrumentarian power challenge the classic would pro quo of freedom for ignorance. When it comes to surveillance capitalist operations, the market is no longer invisible, certainly not in the way that Smith or Hayek imagined that it would be. That's Adam Smith, obviously, and um, Frederick Hayek, who is a very popular libertarian-oriented economist. The competitive struggle among the surveillance capitalists produces the compulsion towards totality. Total information tends towards certainty and the promise of guaranteed outcomes. These operations mean that the supply and demand of behavioral futures markets are rendered in infinite detail. Surveillance capitalism thus replaces mystery with certainty as it substitutes rendition, behavioral modification, and prediction for the old, unsurveyable pattern. This is a fundamental reversal of the classical ideal of the market as instinctively unknowable. As as Google's Eric Schmidt observed in 2010, you give us more information about you, about your friends, and we can improve the quality of our searches. We don't need you to type at all. We know where you are. We know where you've been. We can more or less know what you're thinking about. Uh, Sachin Nadella of Microsoft understands all physical and institutional spaces, people and social relationships, are indexable and searchable, all of its subjects to uh, to machine reasoning, pattern recognition, prediction, preemption, interruption, and modification. Surveillance capitalism is not the old capitalism, and its leaders are not Smiths or even Hayek's capitalists. Under this regime, freedom and ignorance are no longer twin-born, no longer two sides of the same coin called mystery. Surveillance capitalism. Is instead defined by an unprecedented convergence of freedom and knowledge. The degree that this convergence corresponds exactly to the scope of instrumentarian power. This unimpeded accumulation of power effectively hijacks the division of learning in society, instituting the dynamics of inclusion and exclusion upon which surveillance revenues depend. Surveillance capitalists claim the freedom in order to knowledge, the freedom to order knowledge, and then they leverage that knowledge advantage in order to protect and expand their freedom. So, that being said, all right, so the second aspect of surveillance capitalism she defines, and that's reciprocity. So, first off, what is reciprocity? Basically, it means you're exchanging things with others for a mutual benefit. Something positive comes to both of you for the exchange. In theory, this is one of the bedrocks of capitalism. But in surveillance capitalism, reciprocity is totally abandoned. Zuboff gives two reasons for that. So, they are, quote from the book here. First, surveillance capitalists no longer rely on people as consumers. Instead, the axis of supply and demand orients the surveillance capitalist firm to businesses intent on anticipating the behavior of populations, groups, and individuals. The results, as we have seen, is that users are sources of raw material for digital age production processes aimed at new business customers. Basically, we've become the you know, new uh, raw materials, more or less, folks. That's what she's kind of getting at here. Anyway, to continue, where individual consumers continue to exist in surveillance capitalist operations, purchasing Roomba vacuum cleaners, dolls that spy, smart vodka bottles, or behavior based insurance policies, just to name a few examples, social relations are no longer founded on mutual exchange. And these and many other instances, products and services are merely hosts for surveillance capitalism's parasitic operations. To give you a great example of this, every time you do a Google search, Google makes money off of that. Okay. So you're basically earning Google revenue. They're using you as a form of capital and you're in a lot of cases, not even like aware of it. And you're getting, I mean, almost no benefit from what Google is deriving from this. Okay. Second, by historical standards, the large surveillance capitalists employ relatively few people compared to their unprecedented computational resources. This pattern in which a small, highly educated workforce leverages the power of massive capital intensive infrastructure is called hyperscale. This historical discontinuity of the hyperscale business operation becomes apparent by comparing seven decades of G unemployment levels And market capitalization to recent post IPO data from Google and Facebook. Uh, From the time that they went public in 2016, Google and Facebook steadily climbed the heights of market capitalization, with Google reaching 532 billion by the end of 2016 and Facebook reaching 332 billion without Google ever employing more than 750,000 people or Facebook more than 18,000. General Motors took four decades to reach its highest capitalization mark of two hundred and twenty-five, hundred uh, point five billion in 1965 when it employed 735,000 uh, 735, women and men. Most startling is the GM employed more people during the height of the Great Depression than either Google or Facebook employs at the height of their market capitalizations. So again, this is another thing too. the old industrial revolution, uh, again, I mean, for all its faults, I mean, it did create these massive factories that required massive amounts of workers to keep them going and so forth. So eventually, once workers figured out how to organize, I mean, that gave the workforce a certain degree of power because you needed them to function. But increasingly, you know, we're moving away from that the rise of all these digital technologies as um, Zuboff is getting at here. I mean, increasingly it's about these highly trained technicians who need very specialized degrees and so on and so forth. So, yeah, you know, you have a much more exclusive workforce now and a much smaller one that's gravitating to these massively capitalized corporations and so forth. So that's kind of another, you know, interesting dynamic about this. You know, we just don't need the massive amounts of workers like we did in pretty much all other stages of human history. And it's just that simple. We don't. Uh, this is another you know, thing that I think this makes this era a little different than some of the previous ones. But anyways, so much uh, for repository here. Now let's get into Zubel's third characteristic of Zafirion's capitalism. I find this to be the most interesting one. She defines it as collectivism. So here is what this amazing woman has to say about this. Uh, The accumulation of freedom and knowledge combines with the lack of organic reciprocities with people to shape a third unusual feature of surveillance capitalism, a collectivist orientation that diverges from longstanding values, market capitalism, and market democracy while also sharply departing from surveillance capitalism's origins in the neoliberal worldview, which is also very striking as really a lot of it was even more libertarian oriented, but that's another topic. Uh, for the sake of its own commercial success, surveillance capitalism aims us towards the hive collective. This privatized instrumentarian social order is a new form of collectivism in which it is the market, not the state, which concentrates both knowledge and freedom within its domain. The collectivist orientation is an unexpected development in light of surveillance capitalism's origins in a neoliberal creed conceived 60 years ago as a reaction to the collective's totalitarian nightmares of the 20th century. Later, with the demise of fascist and socialist threats, neoliberal ideology cunningly succeeded in redefining the modern democratic state as a first source of collectivism to, collectivism to be resisted by any and all means. Indeed, the evisceration of the double mo- movement has been prosecuted in the name of defeating the supposed collective hazards of, quote, too much democracy. Now the hive emulates the termite state, which even the democracy despising heineck derived as incompatible with human freedom. So yes, this is, to my mind, easily the most striking about face of all of this. And again, you know, we very much clearly see this uh, in a lot of the ideology coming out of Davos, which obviously Eric Schmidt of Google is a big part of, uh, we've mentioned, or rather uh, Zuboff has mentioned Schmick and Google quite a bit in the work that we've read from here thus far. So, yeah, I mean, and this is also coming from, you know, again, the whole kind of culture Silicon Valley, which really grew out of um, a lot of the kind of utopian libertarianism that was so prevalent in the counterculture. But, I mean, these guys have almost all become born-again collectivist, if you really want to get down to it, um, I think in the most small part due to this collection of big data and so forth. Uh, and it's definitely an interesting development. Uh, John, do you have any thoughts on this thus far?
1: Uh, no, not no, go ahead, Seem. OK,
0: OK. All right, so to wrap up here with uh, Zuboff here, and uh, what is surveillance capitalism? Surveillance capitalism's successful claims to freedom and knowledge, its structural independence from people, its collectivist ambitions, and the radical indifference that it is necessitated, enabled and sustained by all three now, propel us towards a society in which capitalism does not function as a means to inclusive economic or political institutions. Instead, surveillance capitalism must be reckoned as a profoundly anti- anti-democratic social force. <clears throat> Surveillance capitalism's anti-democratic and anti egalitarian juggernaut is best described as a market-driven coup from above. It is not a coup d'etat in the classic sense, but a, two, but a coup de djins, an overthrow of the people concealed as the technological Trojan horse that is Big Other. On the strength of its annexation of human experience, the coup achieves exclusive concentration of knowledge and power that sustains the privileged influence over the division of learning in society, the privatization of the central principle of social ordering in the 21st century. It is a form of tyranny that feeds on people, but is not of the people. It is a surreal paradox. This coup is celebrated as a personalization, although it defiles, ignores, overrides, and displaces, everything about you and me that is personal and indeed yes it's essentially an attempt to try to lead a coup to over the world at large by something that is not human if we are to believe the the literature it's a rather striking concept to deal with so let us get in here to the second part of our discussion Zuboff got a lot into one of the leading surveillance capitalists, which is Eric Schmidt. She essentially singles out Google and Facebook as being the drivers behind the rise of surveillance capitalism. And I basically agree with her on this point. These are really the two major ones that the ones that have come up with all these different means of predictive modeling and so on and so forth that have been so crucial or at least at the forefront. But I think she errs in trying to attribute a lot of Facebook surveillance capitalism to Zuckerberg. In my opinion, it is very much Peter Thiel who is the driving force behind this. You have to keep in mind that Peter Thiel founded Palantir prior to uh, investing in Facebook, and Palantir was really spurred by the, the whole total information awareness thing that DARPA had uh, tried to launch in the aftermath of 9-11. In fact, John Poindexter became an early uh, lobbyist for Palantir after uh, he was booted out of that whole fiasco. So anyway, Teal very early on saw the importance of collecting data so that it could be used to analyze, you know, for these uh, predictive models and so forth that were um, beginning to look more and more promising with the rise of computers and so forth. OK, so, I mean, this was a guy who was really there, I think, at the onset, maybe even more so than Google. I mean, Google obviously is probably the you know most polished of all the surveillance capitalists, but I kind of feel in some ways they might have stumbled more into what they were doing. Whereas I think Thiel you know, was really the guy who first recognized a lot of the potential of this. Now, of course, Teal cut his, uh, his teeth in a little body known as the PayPal Mafia. John and I uh, here had already done a pretty in-depth examination of the rise in history of the PayPal Mafia. So I urge you guys, if you're subscribers, to uh, go and uh, check out that old episode here. Uh, but for now, I wanted, uh, you know, obviously we're in 2022 now. It's been, I think, maybe a year since we did that one. John, what's the landscape now for the PayPal Mafia? Where do you see them uh, residing in it?
1: Well, let's see here. Uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, continues his quest for world domination uh, by continuing to fund various uh, political campaigns within the United States, including uh, J.D. Vance, and you might find this very interesting recluse, Liz Cheney, who's, car- who's currently uh, the Republican head of the January 6th Commission. So, huh. Seems like uh Peter Teal uh is uh you know betting on all sides, as they say. What's well, interesting and- too, because
0: he's also backing Harriet Harriman, too, who's running against Liz Cheney in Wyoming, correct? Yes. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. Well, he, well, he likes to do this kind of thing. We'll maybe get into that a little bit here, but um, Yeah, no, the whole thing with the elections, I mean, really, in general, is going to be really fascinating. Besides J.D. Vance, there are some other interesting figures that he's pushing. I've got a little bit of that into that in the Farms Patreon. Hopefully, we'll be able to do a bit more of a deep dive into that later. But um, you're also seeing a lot of these QAnon candidates come in as well. And um, let's just say that... um, probably not a coincidence that there's a lot of cross-pollinization with some of the people that Teal was uh, backing as well. Uh, so yeah, it's it's looking like um, the elections are going to constitute a real shit show in 2022 and 2024, uh, probably further uh, discrediting the notion of democracy in theory. But again, that's that's probably the whole point of this kind of insanity. Okay, Josh. Let's get into Teal proper and some of his recent efforts. What is up with Palantir and Operation Warp Speed slash Operation Tiberius Kirk?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, Peter Teal through Palantir uh, uh, was asked by the uh, Trump administration through Operation Warp Speed to develop a database uh, to track uh, the manufacturing and delivery of the COVID uh, uh, vaccinations uh, from you know uh, production to distribution uh, to uh, shots in arms. And so anyone who um, either tested positive for COVID-19 in a clinical setting like a doctor's office or a hospital or anyone who's received a, a vaccination. Um, they actually uh, are entered, their, their past, present, and future medical history is entered into uh, this Operation Tiberius Kirk database that could be uh, accessed at any and given, accessed for any point in given time. Uh, for anywhere up to five to 10 years for what I've seen. This is also happening in the United Kingdom. It's also happening in other parts of Europe where the United Kingdom actually, uh, there was a stink caused by Palantir being involved in the collecting of their health data as well. And it was supposed to be transitioned uh, to base systems, uh, but it never came to fruition, actually. That was a ruse. Uh, And Palantir maintained the contract uh, with the... um, uh, United Kingdom's National Institutes of Health. John, out so, of
0: curiosity was that were any of the things in the UK related to is um, it Winnie or oh gosh, who was the LaSarre chairman that was doing a lot with the vaccines there? Oh, it was um um Ned Hemsahawai. Um, yeah, really interesting guy. I think uh he, well he was a, a chancellor at the Exchange just recently when Boris Johnson resigned, and uh, he had also served as uh, Education Secretary as well. Some. Uh, really interesting post to a uh, hold, to put it mildly. Especially if he was also involved with the vaccines.
1: So um, he was parla- parliamentary undersecretary for state uh, of for COVID nineteen vaccine deployment from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. So anybody who is up in arms about Palantir and Peter Thiel and their you know the global network of what. Uh, Peter Teal is is trying to build, uh, you know, and people are, you know, upset about Palantir's uh, data collection and, uh, you know, Gotham and working with law enforcement and, uh, some other things that we're going to discuss hopefully a little bit later. Um, let me know
0: that NM Well had been working with uh, Teal in
1: this. I don't know. I, I mean, yes he, yes, he would have, yes.
0: Okay, with Palantir, yeah, then that's interesting because Teal is also a builder burger too, so that's kind of mm-hmm. um. Sort of shows where I think also to a lot of these uh, these old alliances have really kind of started to shift as well. But it's fascinating. You see, kind of like an X. And in fact, I think Teal might even be like one of the top dogs in Bilderberg now. So that would really be interesting if you had like an X with Sir Cowhead and Teal, a big Bilderberg poo working together in some of this in the UK. Just yeah, progression there. But.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- I mean, anybody who's upset about Palantir or Peter Teal in general should be upset, you know, that if you got the and I've talked about this before, if you got the vaccine, well, Palantir now has access to your past, present and future medical data. And this was continued under the Biden administration. It didn't go away. Actually, there was more funding given to Peter Thiel. Uh, actually, the United Kingdom renewed their contract this year as well. So there was more uh, uh, money given to Thiel. Uh, you know, it didn't it started under Trump. It didn't stop under Biden. Uh, So now Palantir has your health data. And so what are they, whom are they collecting it for? Are they collecting it for the world elite, the, you know, the United States, United Kingdom governments, are they collecting them from, for big pharma? Uh, I really don't know. Uh, But it's, it's very alarming uh, because I don't think you would want, you know, anyone without your knowledge, let alone Palantir have your past, present and future uh, health history, uh, there's numerous um, privacy laws, I would assume, would be uh, broken by that. However, because of the urgency and the emergency of the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, it seems that that has been uh, overlooked, uh, as well as too, the United Nations Food Program was using. A modification of Operation Tiberius Kirk and Palantir to also track the vaccines that they were giving out through uh, their food program, through the food, because they would give people, uh, hungry people in Africa food, but also give them a COVID vaccine as well. Uh, they were also tracking it, too, through the United Nations World Food Program, also supposedly uh, as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you see articles saying that Operation Tiberius Kirk was not a success, but it still continues on to this day. and I think those articles are actually try- are actually to downplay uh, a success of literally Peter Till getting a hold of uh, hundreds of millions, uh, billions of uh, people's medical uh, data um, to, I would say, further refine psychographical warfare. Right, recluse?
0: I mean, more specifically with behavioral modification, but yeah, I mean, that's an aspect of it. But I mean, again, I think this ultimately goes back to the collectivist tendencies that a lot of these, um, you know, I mean, underpinning a lot of these policies and so forth. I mean, you're trying to alter human behavior fundamentally uh, to make essentially more predictable um, consumers, uh, citizens, whatever, you know what I'm saying? I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, again, I know people are probably sick of me invoking it, but I mean, the third season of um, uh, Westworld is really a great, I think, fictional depiction of how something like this would work. Or, I mean, the broader part of humanity has been so closely monitored from this, you know, various kinds of data collection from your social media, from your health, and then later probably from uh, data gathered from your brain, neurosensor activity, things like that they'll be able to modify behavior to the extent that will become gra- or most of the pops become gradually more and more dehumanized and more easily to predict. And, um, the aspects of the populace that don't, they will become these kind of outliners, um, who, uh, you might find this interesting, John, they have these, uh, these sort of apps that they give them to get them to, uh, engage in criminal behavior that, uh, Play out a lot like alternate reality games. Ironically, uh, that's really interesting, isn't it, John?
1: <laughs> oh, very much so. But we got something on that in a minute. Another adventure yeah, yeah, uh, that uh, that uh, Peter Till has been involved in. Um,
0: but why don't you tell us a bit about a uh, Palantir and citizen application right now?
1: Yeah. So uh, Peter Till uh, has uh, has uh, um, through uh, the Founders Fund. Uh, has involved in, uh, has evolved, uh, has uh, financed um, this uh, Citizen app, um, which is a crowdsourced crime tracking app. Uh, and, the, and the Founders Fund has put in millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, it was, I think Citizen was able to, ra- to raise recently $133 million from Founders Fund, Sequoia Capital, and others. Uh, that was last year in 2021. Um, So the Citizen app is is a way for, it's pretty much a way for you, uh, and it seems to primarily be used in in, in major cities, for people to record crimes, for people to talk about crimes, for people to report it to law enforcement, uh, and for people to, um, I mean, pretty much record anything. So the Citizen app also actually interestingly enough, it was tied into Operation Tiberius Kirk, which I think it was the basis for an early COVID passport. And in numerous cities, you were able to uh, put in your your COVID vaccine information into the Citizen app and literally use it uh, as a COVID passport um so you know vaccination passport so that was interesting integration there you see the integration between citizen uh and um oper- operation warp which by the way the citizen app in and of itself do you know what its original title for the app was actually called but they changed it because it was uh to
0: uh it was from lord of the rings wasn't it john n- n-
1: no actually not this one no but a lot of peter till's was it was vigilante
0: oh vigilante that's good that's good
1: so they were wondering, you know... It what you want, but you,
0: These blokes have got some flair there. I will give them that.
1: It kind of makes you think of mob, mob justice, right? So Vigilante was backed initially by a million dollars from Founders Fund. Uh, and of course, they rebranded as Citizen because, you know, I mean, think about it. Vigilante makes you think of mob justice, you know. So uh, occasionally, recently in, in, stu- in, in stories, you'll see um, uh, Citizen app... Um, Videos being released and being used by the news media on reports of uh, of, of certain crimes, um, and uh, it seems to become uh, frequently uh, an occurrence uh, more and more often uh, that you'll see literally to just up like news reports will just play citizen um, uh, videos. Uh, now, in of, of itself, I don't necessarily. I I I guess have a problem with the theory of the app, but who is it involved with and that citizen uh, app and of, of itself uh, gives its um, user data to law enforcement. Uh, now they claim only in response to valid subpoenas, court orders, or search warrants, but. I don't know, and um, I mean, who's getting all of this information? You know what I mean. What could it be used from for? I don't know, but it's concerning nonetheless that Peter Thiel has such an investment involvement into this. Yeah, app. No, that's
0: really interesting, man. In light of you know some of the stuff we've covered with like Gabby Petito and what have you, because I mean. I had never really considered that angle. I mean, I had suspected that there was maybe some elements of an art, the Gabby Petito thing. Uh, and if I may be correct on that, um, it would be a fascinating way to gather data on the kind of people who, uh, you know, would actually try to investigate a real crime and solve it and something like that. That actually, um, yeah, there's some very fascinating implications to something like that, John.
1: Yeah, actually, I remember there was a movie actually about that. That that there was um, an advanced reality game that people were uh, uh, filming uh, assassins. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of that movie. It was actually interesting when I I think it was Guns Akimbo. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, this definitely is some sort of invasion of privacy. Uh, it wouldn't even be used, in my opinion, for maybe, uh, well, John, that's, that's what I'm kind of getting at. Privacy
0: doesn't exist. And oh, well, in I, the know doesn't. Of the future I know it does. I know we're discussing about that's like another paradigm. Like, we're, we're beyond the whole thing of like privacy. It's, you know, Big Other does not give us privacy anymore, John.
1: Oh, I know. And so, you know, it becomes like a, a voyeuristic type app. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, um, supposedly, um, uh, briefly from the Apple Store. I don't know if it still is because of "quote unquote" privacy or safety concerns. So some people were actually wondering if vigilantes would actually, you know, occur from this app of people filming themselves stopping crimes or whatever. And at one point, in a given time, one last thing, which this is a libertarian uh snow crash Sweat dream uh as that citizen was developing its own private police forces that if there was a crime going on uh you could alert them by the app and uh, have, you know either be part of some subscriber service we have access to a private police force or pay for a private private police force to show up to uh protect you so uh,
0: fascinating oh all right, John, tell us a bit about the Clearview AI and Palantir in January 6th.
1: Yeah, so this is this is something that I've been studying uh quite quite a while. Um so uh the founder of uh ClearView AI, uh his name is um uh hon uh Tontat. Um so he was originally uh going to be um a uh model but at the same time he was also um quite knowledgeable in uh technology um and uh he's from uh, he's from australia and so he um while he was now this is a story and i don't know how much i believe this or not but it kind of reminds me of the whole uh, found the founding of uh, Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk and meeting CMP President Foster Freeze in a stairwell and getting seed money for it at a CPAC convention is a little too much, all right. But um, so Tontat supposedly uh uh met uh Richard Schwartz at at uh the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, okay, in 2016. And so what they ended up doing was they partnered in an application to pretty much you know scrape images from internet sources and cross reference them with a the facial recognition algorithm so you could start um kind of like in uh what was that one mov- uh, minority report you could kind of uh, uh see people um like match them up with their faces uh, kind of like better uh, facial recognition detection uh, to thwart criminals, kind of like pre-crime type aspect, or to even solve crimes. Uh, and interestingly enough, the people that were involved in it with Tontat were Peter Thiel. So there was major um, Peter Thiel money that went into the, the funding of, um, uh, of a Clearview AI. But people that, 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 that are from the alt-right or considered to be the dissident right, would be uh, Peter Thiel's uh, one of Peter Thiel's capos that goes around and funds a lot of the alt right or dissident right. That'd be Jeff Giacia. Uh but also uh, Chuck Johnson, uh, Andrew Weave, Ehrenheimer, and Mike Cernovich. So most of your listening audience should recognize those names, okay? And so, literally, you know, some major players in the alt right or in the dissident right, you no, know, depending on who you ask. Um, we're involved with Tontat were involved with the formation and the utilization of Clearview AI. Some people say that Chuck Johnson was actually involved in the development uh, of, of, of the software that Clearview AI uses. Um, and so if that's the case, then, uh, you know, a lot of Clearview AI's technology uh was developed by the all right was developed by the dissident right was funded and directly developed by peter Thiel, and it has been used in uh by the sedition hunters which you know most sedition hunters uh, people try to identify the um uh the true believers operatives and opportunists that were at the january 6 um riots uh they um they their the sedition hunters are you're using Clearview AI technology uh, to identify these people. So so-called progressives and leftists, uh, which if you actually look in the the uh, the, the foundation of the sedition hunters and, and of themselves, uh, they seem to be major Israeli Zionists. Uh, but uh, they're they're using you know you think they would be um, against the use of technology developed by the alt right, developed by the dissident right, developed by Peter Thiel. Uh, to identify these so-called uh, true believers, operatives and opportunists of January 6th, a mixed event, uh, but no, they don't care. Uh, and so, yeah, that's interesting. And then recently it also came out to as well, recluse, um, that um, the Ukrainian government, uh, supposedly that Tat and Clearview I offer Clearview II to be used by the Ukrainian government to identify Ukrainian and Russian combatants and uh, missing Ukrainians, uh, you know, during the war, uh, for free, uh, just like you know, Elon Musk, former you know, uh, PayPal Mafia, uh, offered the use of uh, Starlink uh, to Ukraine. Uh, so you know, right now, Ukraine is using Clearview AI technology and Starlink, using you know, literally PayPal Mafia technology. All right, so. You know, oh, in clear fairness UA- to
0: Ukraine, like I think their defense minister just told the Atlantic Council a few days ago that um, he was willing to um, open up his uh, his country to the Western powers to test all of their experimental um, technology. And so um, the Ukrainian, they don't really seem to have an issue with this, frankly.
1: No. And, and I mean, you know, the um, I mean, the, the the limited hangout that's the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, I mean, they sued Clearview AI for a clear breach of, I guess, what you would call biometric ethics, I I guess. Um, And so, um, you know, Clearview ended up settling with them uh, a few months ago, actually. Um, And, I mean, this is a major invasion of so-called privacy that doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, this is being used by... Various police and law enforcement agencies in America, various commercial entities uh, are using uh, Clearview AI's technology as well, as well as international law enforcement Um, and, you know, the government of Ukraine. So they're literally building a database of your biometric data, and it's funded by Peter Thiel and was developed by many alt-right, dissident-right, you know, people. Uh, including primarily Chuck Johnson, so this should be concerning to everyone. But well, I mean, it seems about, about it. part
0: of the coins of what we've been discussing here. I mean, you know, just earlier we were getting into the whole concept of the hive mind. I mean, this, and I mean, really, when you look at, I mean, it's kind of prevalence in the the counterculture of the 21st century. I mean, there's a clear. Think evolution, you know, sort of going back to the anonymous collective, up and through the alt right, into the QAnon thing. So, I mean, again, this is kind of like, you know, another concept that's being pushed into some of these circles where you wouldn't necessarily think that um, you know, they would be there, and it's then becoming mainstream. I mean, now this is like a, a goal that people like Eric Schmidt of Google are like pushing for. So, yeah,
1: yeah, and I mean Palmer Luckey, who developed Oculus. Uh, Who was you know has Anduril Industries? It's funded by Peter Thiel, who's literally the Biden administration approved uh, his virtual border wall using drones and everything. Um, And Anduril, of course, would be from Lord of the Rings. Um, But um, you know he was also involved with Clearview AI as well. So it's all an incestuous network that Thiel's involved with, and Thiel's extremely powerful. And yeah, a lot of people talk about him, but depending on your ideology, uh, they leave out a lot of things. So, you know, I mean, you know, you know, the people on the right won't necessarily talk about Gotham and Palantir and and how Palantir is used by law enforcement to oppress uh, people worldwide. Uh, And the left won't necessarily talk about Operation Tiberius Kirk or Clearview AI being used in the January 6th identification. You know, it's it's it's, it's hypocrisy all around.
0: Or, I mean, generally, Teal's involvement with Bilderberg as well. That's actually not usually discussed a lot either by a lot of different people. Um, but anyway, Thiel is a really interesting guy. And now we're going to unpack another concept, and that is whether or not he's actually on board with surveillance capitalism. Okay, so Peter Thiel is often referred to as the contrarian for his tendency to bet against prevailing notions. And that provides us with the segue into the last section here, and that's basically whether or not surveillance capitalism. As I just said, whether Teal believes this is what we're heading towards or not. Does Teal, in fact, believe the big other is going to fail? In fact, it sounds crazy, right? I mean, well, just before jumping to this conclusion, we need to consider another highly interesting work. It's one I've already mentioned before, but I'm bringing it up again. It's called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence. And it was written by a guy called Eric Larson. And he's, he's an interesting dude in his own right. I, he was the founder of two darpa funded ai startups actually so he's actually you know worked in this industry and he's currently working core itch- issues in natural language processes and machine learning so this isn't somebody who you know is uh, talking out of his ass here he's actually worked in the ai field and that's one another one of the reasons why the myth of artificial intelligence is probably the most scathing put down of AI you are going to encounter, I would really urge everybody out there to read it. He makes a very, very compelling case as to why um, the current concepts, the mythology, as he dubs it, of AI that uh, has become almost a religion will not come to pass and may never come to pass. And I'm talking about specifically things like the singularity and a lot of this other insanity that... uh, you know, has really become a kind of modern mythos in certain quarters. So it's a very, very good work on a lot of levels. He makes a lot of very compelling points about the limits of machine learning. But in general, as he argues, essentially, I mean, you may be able to design an AI, as we've done thus far, that can replicate several human functions as well as a human being, but unable to do the entire broad spectrum of things that human mind can accomplish we're not remotely close to anything like this and again we might never be it's a very um well uh, constructed argument and i'm probably butchering it right now uh, tremendously so please don't just let that dissuade you from picking up this great book but as for our discussion here it's especially relevant now teal isn't mentioned much in this book in and of itself but He gives it a glowing endorsement on the back. Uh, Specifically, Teal says, if you want to know about AI, read this book for several reasons. Most of all, because it shows how a supposedly futuristic reverence for artificial intelligence retards progress when it degenerates and most irreplaceable resource for any future progress. Our human intelligence. Interesting. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Based on several of the comments that Larson attributes to Teal in the work, I'm left with the impression that Teal probably contributed directly to Larson's philosophical outlook in this. So in a way, I kind of wonder if this book might be Teal's way of kind of subtly putting some of his own thoughts about AI out there in the marketplace. All right so let's see here what does uh larson say about teal or the book all right so there are the references first off uh, the end of chapter 18 with larson here <clears throat> although scientists in growing numbers are disconnected with data brain solutions to ongoing theoretical concerns the ethos of big data ai is now firmly entrenched in science and culture generally Ironically, as general intelligence is supposed to be emerging from AI and its applications to scientific research, it's noticeably downplayed in the roles of scientists. Billionaire tech entrepreneur and investor Peter Thiel remarked recently that innovations seem to be drying up, not accelerating. Tech startups... Once dreamed to be the next big ideal to woo investors in the valley, but now have exit strategies that almost universally aim for acquisitions by big tech companies like Google and Facebook, who have a lock on innovation anyway, since big data AI always works better for whoever owns the most data. The fix is in. The question is whether, as Teal puts it, there is now a derangement of the culture, quote, Or whether the good ideas have already been snatched up okay so let's get into the meat of some of the stuff here that larson gets from okay the specter of a purely technocratic society where science which once supplied us with radical revolutionary discoveries and inventions now plays the role of lab coated technician tweaking knobs on the giant brains of supercomputers was suggested early on by scientific american writer john horgan in his hugely popular the end of science Horgan in the mid-90s wondered whether the seemingly petering out of basic research in science was inevitable for the simple fact that major discoveries are behind us this is one half of teal's theory today is the culture deranged Sit on a course of choking out new ideals as wine are worried, or are we actually out of basic ideals because they've already found them all? This latter possibility would represent the end in a basic sense, so we might pray that culture has merely embraced an all encompassing technological answer to basic questions that is only asphyxiating human intelligence as a byproduct. There's at least a hypothetical way to fix a deranged culture of science. Escape from the Tron world at the end of the ideals represented a further nightmare. Teal's question is central to the future, not just of AI, but humanity. And unfortunately, we have evidence for both hypotheses. On the one hand, cheerful promotion of the myth, that is the AI myth that he's referring to, and its cousin in swarm science, which is kind of the evolution of the hive mind in respectable circles, such as the scientific community, their version is swarm science, guys. Like cheerleading for human minds before it. <laughs> said the Flarsen in there. Seems to suggest that modern society has indeed wandered whistling into a kind of derangement of core values, precisely as Weiner portended. On the other hand... The question of whether we have no choice, as Morgan argues, presents a disquieting possibility that now, more than 300 years after the scientific revolution, all the low-hanging fruit of physical and computational theory have been picked. In this view, we've already discovered more or less what could be discovered about physics with first Newton's laws and then Einstein's relativity and the development of 20th century quantum mechanics. Meaning via the physics progress will be largely about filling in gaps and details in existing theory, and no doubt testing the predictions of such theories with larger and more expensive technologies such like supercolliders. Welcome to machine land either negative possibility would support markham's suggestion that einstein is now unwanted and doesn't have anything left to do today so maybe contribute to data science the nobility of coming superintelligence is here turned upside down because humans so brilliant in discovering the fundamental building blocks of the universe now must retire and watch as the culture turns from discoveries to tech. as their culture turns from discoverers just discoverers to technicians Tending supercomputers is the modern version of Voltaire's tending the garden. The serious work is over. Human beings shouldn't have to be so smart. So. Provides us with some rather chilling insights here. In a lot of this. And it kind of, I think, also shows why there's such an obsession with really pushing this collective mindset amongst the general populace here. So. On the one hand, if you have the one scenario here where um, basically we need people to be more collectivist because we need less brilliant individuals, less Einsteins and so forth for society to be sufficiently and efficiently managed. Uh, Because again, you know, Westworld is a great... Fictional depiction of this uh, to put this in perspective for you guys in the third season, especially here, you have this kind of hypothetical AI supercomputer thing that's managing all the world, and it has to go after these outliners. uh, People are kind of talking about before that were targeted by these apps uh, that were kind of designed like alternate reality games now to understand this, I mean, the easiest way to explain briefly the concept of feedback and cybernetics here so. You have two kinds of feedback, negative and positive. Negative feedback is what is desirable because it's system-sustaining and basically holds everything together, whereas positive feedback is destabilizing, and positive feedback would be new ideals that would change and alter society, things of that nature. It doesn't necessarily, it can be negative as well, but it doesn't have to be, Okay. So outliners in the fictional universe of Westworld would be the most likely individuals to generate positive feedback loops, which would be something that you would not want because they would bring unpredictability and you're trying to maximize predictability as John's kind of talking about you want all these predictive models and psychographic things and what have you so you can model how they would be done well into the future and all this other kind of stuff and have really accurate views about how people will behave. So, if you're going for that kind of scenario you need a lot of kind of collectivism too but on the other hand you know you're kind of in another tight spot if uh we are at the end of major scientific advancements and again this is something i just uh, i'm sure john will have some thoughts on this but i've talked to link um with the great christopher Knowles of the secret sun and this a lot over the years and chris is obviously uh Address this topic far more eloquently than I could ever possibly do it justice to. But Chris is also um, a very big believer, I think, in these kind of notions as well. That we've really uh, gotten about as far as we can with the current technological boom. In fact, if anything, as Teal would kind of elaborated, it's it's really slowing down. It's not really talked about a lot. But I mean, yeah, there is this kind of sense that most of the low hanging fruit has been snatched and it might be you know a long time maybe a couple hundred years until we have the same sort of technological progress that became sort of the norm during the 20th century that we all became so accustomed to and again you know that also sort of presents issues I mean you would think in such a scenario that you would need um more genius but um uh, as it's kind of suggested there's not really much for genius to do but to tend gardens at this point which uh again could be problematic uh, as we'll kind of get into in my uh, series on the gifted program wherever it kind of started to i've already started that in the subscriber section of the farm but uh to get into depth we'll uh, see how a lot of uh gifted kids have definitely kind of uh gone a little crazy and had to be dealt with over the years and um One of the problems with genius, when it's not properly applied, it can lead to a lot of mental breakdowns and geniuses can do a lot of damage. uh, Not restrained. So anyway, it's kind of another reason why uh, you would also potentially want to push this sort of collectivist mindset. Because again, you know, if you're going to have uh, what is almost a kind of byzantine society let's just say and i say this in sort of the sort of stereotypical perception of the quote-unquote byzantine empire there actually was no such thing as a byzantine empire to the modern era when uh, later historians dubbed it such the eastern roman empire but anyway um whatever you want to call it there's just generally this perception of just you know, retardation. I mean, they had this great high culture from the Romans and they really didn't do much with it over the course of several hundred years. And I think essentially this is kind of what they're saying here. You know, you uh, we had built this great civilization and we've gone about as far with it as we can and now there's nothing really left. So what do you do? then? There's going to be, you know, good job of the Pomplius, You know, you can kind of condition and become... Uh, more predictable you know we've already got a lot of the tech in place to accomplish a lot of this kind of stuff but you're still going to have issues with um other aspects of society and that could lead to possibly long-term instabilities which the technology may not be capable of dealing with and that kind of brings us into another interesting point here as well um you know, when you sort of look again, as I had kind of alluded to earlier, I mean, it kind of seems like the two driving forces behind uh, this whole notion of surveillance capitalism are you know, kind of Teal through his mediums and Palantir and Facebook and all of this other stuff on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, Eric Schmidt through Google. I mean, Teal of course is kind of at the Bilderberg level and in the international scale, I and mean, he works a lot with the alt right and that kind of thing in the U.S um you know uh, schmidt on the flip side of the coin is kind of your atlantic council uh, new america foundation guy and there's sort of circles i mean he's sort of their boy and certainly a big part of the davos thing as well so you know again this sort of begs the question i mean once again it seems like davos was really all in on the first scenario and um I think, to some extent, there's a lot of truth to both of these scenarios, but I think the second one maybe has more compelling uh, evidence to support it. Um, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people are generally uh, always convinced that the people surrounding Davos are invincible, but uh, I recall the days when Agenda 2030 was Agenda 2020. Um And I kind of suspect it will be agenda 2040, if not agenda 2050 at some point in the coming years. A big part of that is just because, again, the final steps, I think, in this super technology that they were really banking on just haven't materialized. And um, some of the other policies that they've embarked upon are now starting to have some real concerns to this segment, I mean, one of the big things, I think in general, both of them are kind of dealing with now is labor. I mean, as we sort of talked about before, labor has become increasingly superfluous, but I mean, on the flip side of the coin, we haven't quite got to the point yet where, I mean, you can totally do away with you know the sense of the workforce that they were anticipating. A lot of this automation just isn't working nearly as well. It's, uh, it's continuously hyped to be. And, uh, without that combined with the fact that, in especially a lot of the Western nations, you have aging populations. I mean, I know we're set to hit a world uh, population milestone, but it's going to be short-lived. I mean, even in the People's Republic of China, it's kind of the same situation. You have a rapidly aging population, and when they start to die off, you're going to see some major drops in uh, world population. And um, Incidentally, among uh, many of the working-age people, especially in a lot of the Western countries, a lot of them have... Died, especially in um, the last couple of years. So, again, there's uh, disputes for as to why that may or may not be, but despite the fact there's a lot of evidence out there of a slowing economy and so forth, I mean, we're still also with sort of this situation where, I mean, you have like, you know, one job, one worker for every two job openings or something like that. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of things like that are kind of playing into these scenarios that I think are working against this sort of uh surveillance capitalist dystopia like that that especially the uh the davos circles of power were invested in and that might potentially be uh maybe the end game of a guy like peter Thiel. he sees that it's it's not going to materialize so he's maybe planning for other scenarios so john i know it's like a little long-winded here but uh, did you have anything to add or any thoughts or anything
1: like that no not long-winded at all i was listening to you um I agree with Chris Knowles, um, his whole series of Lucifer's technologies. I, I believe, in a lot of ways, the technology of the elite is, you know, uh, is not coming into fruition in the way that they thought that they that, that it would. Um, you know, most people in the conspiracy culture generally believe that the elite either have technology that's like fifty or hundred years greater than what we currently have access to us now i don't know if that's necessarily true at this point i don't think i believe that very much anymore i think maybe certain things they might have greater technology than we do that we have access to but i actually believe now that there it is more likely that instead of you know like the the rate of technological advancement you know going up, 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 like, you know, curving almost straight up, right? I don't think yeah, it's Murphy's Law, I
0: think that's what they call it. It actually, Murphy's Law hasn't actually been in effect, I think, since like 2004 or something like that, if I remember correctly.
1: Uh, but it's, yeah. It's, so, it's not
0: advancing like the rate it was. It's not.
1: No. Um, And so, again, that's why I'm also, I believe in soft AI instead of hard AI. I don't think it's going to be. I think they're having some major problems with it, and I do think that it does. They are able to use it to oppress us uh, to some degree more over the past few um, decades uh, than beforehand. Um, you know, but you know, I would say that maybe we're a little bit paranoid, thinking that they can observe and record and listen to and process every single little thing that we say on a daily basis. I don't know, but there is a good possibility too. very much. I believe uh, like Elon Musk's uh, space ventures, some of this technology could just be from a a money grub, uh, just be vaporware never coming to fruition. You know, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Again. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also a big part of it. I mean, it's a, a big boondoggle as well i mean just really to further enrich i mean some of these characters too i mean obviously you know there is technology out there i mean we've seen that it is highly effective and there might be i mean a little bit more tweaking that they can do to as you say maybe make the soft ai a little more efficient or something like that but i mean you know again you know this is something that you and i have like followed a lot but i mean there are a lot of args being run right now trying to perpetuate this notion of like sentient ai and what have you line and this kind of stuff it's just you know this is a very incestuous network with a lot of these characters it's one of the things i'm going to kind of elaborate on in my forthcoming book books rather it's actually almost inevitably going to be split into two now but um yeah i mean ultimately if we were this close, I don't think that they would have to run all these freaking args or something like this to perpetuate this uh, this mythos of the sentient AI. It just seems,
1: or the propagation uh, of Hollywood with Terminator, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, I mean, Hollywood. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but I mean, you know, as I always kind of like point out to people, you know, like VR. Um, you know, I can remember back when I was a kid, and I um watched the first season of the X-Files and I remember that um, I think it was during the first season. It may have been the second season. I'm not sure, but yeah, first season actually might've been the adventures of Briscoe County junior, which is a freaking great show, by the way, Bruce Campbell and all of his glory and his prime. But anyway, another show that was also pretty cool that uh, led off of one of the earlier seasons of the X-Files is called PR five. So this is back like in, you know, 93, 94 or something like that. I mean, they're like showing this future, you know, that was just around the corner where we were all going to have the really in-depth VR. And I was like, all we were going to do and what have you. So it's 30 years later. And the best we've come up with is this Oculus Go crap. And even in the midst of the lockdowns, when you would think it was finally time for this stuff to take off, it failed miserably. So, again, this is, like, the kind of stuff where it's, like, really, we can't even develop, like, a decent VR system that, I mean, we actually can get people to want to use after how many decades of just it being right around the corner.
1: It sucks, man. It used to make me sick when I was playing uh, Virtual Boy in the 90s you know and it still makes me I mean, just I mean, as the sick today
0: it's like most people would rather freaking still play D than use an oculus go i mean that's just the truth
1: so it is really garbage
0: yeah i mean it's just if they could actually roll out a decent vr system i might be like a, a little more concerned john honestly I mean, I know that's maybe a little naive on my part, but again, I just, yeah, there's just so many things that you can look around at and there's just, yeah, I mean, you would think that we would be a much further along, maybe they're just still hiding it. I mean, again, I know that's a big thing that people always want to argue with the, you know, I mean, the, the um, you know, the um, breakaway civilizations and all this other stuff. But again, I mean, I also sort of think that that in and of itself is another kind of mythos. Again, that's something that I'll get into in my forthcoming books. But yes, it has a, another long and rich history of uh, being perpetuated by a certain uh, curious circle of individuals that uh, may well have lineages back to the whole PayPal mafia and Q circles. You'll really have to see in my book. But yeah, it's something to keep in mind, guys. Yeah, so, well, John, boy, got any thoughts here?
1: Forever. that's all i got that's all i got just uh don't fear their technology too terrible much uh because i think as of right now unless we get more data uh it's reached their limit and more and more people are developing an uncanny valley and are able to detect when they're being fooled by artificial intelligence so um don't give up on the brain that god has given us yet you know and all the wreck mirac- you know the, the uh miraculous things that it can do so
0: well Uh, Folks, we come to our conclusion of our History of International Fascism series, and now we have ended on the note of um, what I suppose I can kind of, I would like to think of in a way as possibly a contrasting views of post-fascist visions of the future. And I say that because, especially because of the emphasis on collectivism and a lot of these other aspects that we've sort of gone into here, this obsession with uh, AI and I mean many of these other points. I mean, obviously a lot of this is uh, rooted in concepts uh, like uh, uh, cybernetics, but I mean, again, Alendez Chile also embraced cybernetics. Let's not forget, I mean, it has a left wing and a right wing application just don't really think that you have necessarily a monopoly on this kind of, stuff, that either a political ideology has a monopoly on this kind of stuff. And in point of fact, it's almost yielded this um, just monstrous postmodern hybrid in a lot of ways. And it's a scary scenario. And I mean, even if the technology does not work out, there's still enough now to, as Teal uh, pretty much accurately says, derange civilization, debase it. And that's it's a scary prospect. And point of fact, I think that's a big part of what we're seeing. I mean, we had already kind of alluded to that a bit with the, uh, what will probably be clown, epic clown show for the elections in 2022 or 2024, especially if Hillary runs against Trump again, God help us. Or, um, this would certainly qualify as a derangement of culture. This is, I think, kind of an aspect of uh, postmodern or post fascism that is certainly something to behold in one way or other. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think on that note we uh will sign things off and Again, I would like to thank all the participants in this. John, obviously, thank you very much. And Danny uh, for suggesting this and putting much of it together and all of your Herculean efforts. And uh, again, my apologies. Uh, we couldn't have you here. Um, and also, I'm sure this probably was not uh, the note that you necessarily wanted us to uh, end on. But uh got to go with what I know, sir. And uh, Hopefully, uh, at least this was uh, something that people will find appealing here. Also, too, got to thank Mr. Russ Blunt for his invaluable contributions at the onset, as well as the great Dr. Future. And my man, George of CavDev, did two shows with him, uh, one on on the uh, cults throughout Latin America, also with Danny and the uh, one that we both did on uh, South Africa. Uh, so, again, also thank you very much to George. Uh, this was a very much a labor of love for everybody involved. And, uh, I hope you guys have uh, derived something from it. Again, I apologize if this was not necessarily the note that everybody was uh, hoping this uh, would end on. But hopefully this has been a compelling discussion. Uh, maybe again, it's a little out there in a few points, but, um, well, I tried, folks. And- Hopefully this is a fitting end. So with that, I say to you guys as always, good night and good luck to you all.